Hello, welcome back to Jack's Corner, where I discuss everyday society issues and culture here in America. Welcome back to my corner. I am here with Veronica, the Duchess, and she has more material that she has written in prison that she would like to share with you today. Hello, Jackie. Hello. (laughs) And how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good, thank you. I I made a pumpkin bread this morning, and it turned out delicious, so I'm pretty happy to have that for myself. Jackie has her own recipe, and she makes the best pumpkin bread in the world. I I do, I do. I think it's it's the right flavor. It's not too sweet. It's not too spicy. It's just right for me. All right, and so here we're we're back again at um, the manuscript, Sister Me. So um, I've left you off at Wilson's. Well, unfortunately, right now I don't have the manuscript in perfect um, page order because for different reasons. Anyway, we're going to start with August 12, 1988. So many regrets and recriminations. It's difficult to rise above my situation. There is so much familiarity in this seemingly non-stop public condemnation. It's not always an impossible hurdle to overcome. Once I'm able to meet someone face-to-face, spend time with them so they can separate the myth of Veronica from the reality, then most of the time, people like me, meeting me, they begin to discard the rumors they've heard. We all have made mistakes, yet it is often it is often felt that I've been excluded from ever rectifying my errors, as if people do not want to see me as I am, separate from what I did so many years ago. It is in the maintenance of my notoriety that fears are ensured, that society gets a vital affirmation that there are just must be bad guys, really authentic bad guys like me. Is it truly necessary that I be publicly portrayed as irredeemable and unrehabilitatable? Must there never be mitigating circumstances for the likes of people like me? The criminal justice system requires that there be heavies, an ambitious prosecuting attorney, a Nielsen-rating media conscience, and a go-for-the-throat judge incite the public. Fears are aroused, intellectually spanked into hate, Emotions set afire and satisfied only by the utter misery or destruction of the bad guy. It seems necessary to perpetuate in us and them. It makes for a more comfortable collective social conscience, doesn't it? And yet, were I the judge or prosecutor, would I have been any more patient to unravel a very human defendant? Would I have looked for any signs to suggest consideration beyond the formal due of legal process? On my cot, noting the growing bruises and sores from dragging my shackles and chains around my ankles and wrists, I thought, this feels like the end. I can't handle any more. The time structure of natural life is terrible, but the notoriety is the dragon I can't slay. How do I survive healthily in this world which sees me only as the image of a monster? Can I ever overcome the social hate of me? Can I ever be readmitted into the human race? Shall I just accept that 
the worth worthwhileness of my life is cancelled by the crime I committed? If so, then to terminate my life would serve everyone, save my family from further disgrace, save the taxpayers' hard-earned money, end the despair I feel within. For what purpose is there in life if one is unable to love and be loved by one fellow's humans? To help and to share, to trust and to be trusted by one's community. Without these things, isn't life a trivial and futile pursuit? To me, yes, mostly. Normally people in my position contemplate such things. It's almost like euthanasia, really. I've often heard people say, don't give them the death penalty. Give them life without in prison. That's worse. In a way, it may be worse by far. To be hated by your fellow man in your society forevermore is a life without possibility of parole, whether inside or out of prison. I guess it depends on the individual, their circumstances, and family personal relationships. Sometimes my 15 years flat that I'm serving feels unendurable, as if the mind will mutate into something inhuman, or as if I will develop a psychological cancer from the awareness of being so thoroughly ostracized from the society I love. It is the latter awareness that undoes me far more than the imprisonment. Then, too, there are the effects of long-term deprivation. So to choose life in such overwhelmingly negative circumstances, you take it one day at a time. You learn to work at activities that get you out of yourself and hopefully serve the world around you in a productive way. That's how my visual art began. I had sketched off and on throughout my childhood, but was taught that women artists won't be taken seriously. Men dominated that arena. Women were to be pretty, witty, and sexy. Otherwise, they were useless. That's what I picked up on anyway. So always, I kept that in mind, secretly wishing I had been a boy. Boys had the power to defend themselves and enjoyed unlimited social rights. Girls and women were always second class, really there to serve the needs and whims of men, whether willingly or not. It wasn't until I was in isolation, solitary confinement in 1983, that I took seriously my ability to draw. Living for six months in a stripped cell amounting to a concrete box with a mattress on the floor and two blankets, I learned the final harshness destined for a criminal like me, a notorious criminal. The guards turned the water and lights on and off at their convenience and choice. Not that it mattered much since I had nothing to read and no pencil or paper to write on. The walls weren't much to look at, just concrete rectangles repeated over and over again. No outside view at all. The outside window was boarded over and painted black. The crushing monotony of the silence was broken by the screams of women panicking, arguing in other cells by themselves, verbally abusing others, screaming, wailing, or engaging in mostly perverse shouting conversations, belittling the women in the other cells. An ongoing dispute with a maximum security supervisor whether I'd be allowed a plastic spoon to eat my meals instead of having to use my hands as I had been for weeks was resolved in my favor. But I adjusted to eating my food without any utensils whatever. By then, my coverall uniform I always wore. My only clothing had begun to rot off my body. 
literally rot off my body. That hardly mattered any more to me. Just mental survival was the prevalent concern. I did wish at least I'd been allowed socks, though. Having no shoes was bad enough on the frigid concrete. Socks could have kept me a little bit warmer. The unremitting biting cold was definitely the worst aspect of it. The winters in Washington State at the pre-mountain area were not ideal for living without heat. We were mostly physically sick in the isolation wing, pneumonias and such, and many grew sick in the mind as well. Too many. Places like that breed disease at all levels. After six months, I was moved to a cell across the breezeway, three feet from my former blackout box. The new cell was identical to the other, with the addition of a steel bed frame welded to the floor. The real luxury was then is that I was allowed two changes of uniform, also books and writing paper. That's when I began drawing to save my life and sanity. I called my series of drawings Ad Seg for administrative segregation, the official term for the punishment cell block I lived in. The series depicted the living quarters and the women living on the block as well as those who die there. Four psychotopic druggings, suicides, insanity, lack of the most minimal privacy. I put it all on paper. I had to get it out, not just out of my head, but out of the prison and into the free world. I did. My art began touring. My writings were winning competitions and being published nationally. I set about for the first time in my life living a drug-free existence. Not an easy thing to do anywhere. Made harder when it's done by choice, not lack of access. Incredibly, there were drugs down there, but I became clean. It was a matter of my choice. People of the outside world often think that drugs are just something the prisoners use for their own relief. What they don't realize is that a woman can be punished severely for using her own prescription drugs while in the prison, and the prison forces her to take their drugs for their purposes. I had attempted to have my prescription drugs from the outside purchased with my own funds and prescribed to me in prison. This was refused. They'd much rather prescribe me psychotropic medications for schizophrenics, for paranoid delusions, and so forth. Two of my prescriptions were mailed to me once without the consent of the prison authority, and this in part led to additional time imposed on my minimum term. In stark contrast, unit team in charge of prisoners threatened to infract me for refusing their drugs and their psychotropic treatment. But threats and real retaliation were then routine for going against administrators' mandates and it was just as routine for me to live in the manner I thought was healthiest and most humane. Consequently, I stayed neck deep in trouble, as did my peas, partners. In prison, a partner is someone on whom you can rely on, really rely on. I refused their drugs and discontinued the illicit ones as well, determined to prove to myself once and for all that I was either capable of health or, as I had feared for a decade, was impaired forever. 
Fifteen years of drug use on a near daily basis was about to end and it was either sink or swim. I had to know which. And that's it for today's reading, and I hope you enjoyed that. Thank, Thank you, you for, for having me. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that with us. Thank you for having me, Jackie. Okay, so we're back from a break, and Veronica, I noticed prior to us ending the first segment of this episode, which is episode three, uh, you got a little emotional there. Does this make you relive those times in a way you know it's interesting because I didn't anticipate it but yeah I um I could actually see myself in that situation and see the women and it was like going back in time it was really a bizarre memory you know it was just um I don't know if it's because I'm more focused as I age that I can recount things um as they're happening. But also, I can't imagine that there's been other times you've read this material out to others either. So this is kind of like your first in a way. Yes, it is. It is the first in the way, yes. A lot. There's a lot to remember there. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's an understatement. <laughs> but the fact that you have these stories, it helps connect the listeners to what so. the prison experience was like because... 23 years in prison is a fraction of your life, a significant fraction. Yes. So, you know, one has to look back and think, wow, what did I learn from this? How did especially, I overcome all this? Yeah, especially during those pivotal years, I think between the ages of 21 to um, 50, 40-ish, you know, those are really serious um, years where we really develop our character even more so we get to know ourselves and who we are it's still experimental stage but um, I think we become more defined during that era and we are constantly studying and learning at least I was so I think it's just that um, part of the stage of life you know we all have patterns and as we age we have different patterns that, uh, coalesce with those age groups and it's around the you know it's around the globe doesn't matter what culture you come from we all have similar experiences during certain eras of our life i noticed in particular that while you were in prison especially as you studied to be a jailhouse lawyer you spent a lot of time in the library Yes, well, well, can you imagine what would be the best place to be if you're in prison? The library. So that leads me to Hell my yeah. next question. Did you ever have access to the internet while you were in jail, in prison? No, I mean, we had no access to the internet. So your that, first, your first, because when you were doing your, your screenwriting, I don't think you were using computers at, no, we as, were not. as we are today. No, absolutely not. So when you came out of prison, having to experience this technology and learn it, how was that for you? Well, um, I learned certain skills while I was in prison. I took a computer uh, programming interface kind of thing where we started a computer that was broken down and then we were taught how to rebuild a computer that had all of its components, but we had to literally follow the teacher and compile the computer parts 
so that we would get to know um, something about the electronic electronics of it and um, how it interfaces with other parts. So uh, memories and that type of thing. It, it was very interesting, but no, I was never allowed on the computer um, except for there were a few programs that we were able to, like a creative writing program, but they were closed units. They were simply the soft They were more like word processors. Exactly. We had the word processor, yeah. And, yeah. Um, but in terms of having free open access, no, that was impossible. So coming into the new world or the free world, <laughs> the new world... How it funny. is a new world. It was a new world. The free world, you, you've you learned quite a bit because I notice as your business partner that you have picked up some skills over over time. Well, sure. You know, I, I basically delineate those kinds of great ambitions to you. <laughs> <laughs> I let you tackle with those uh, computer I zero one monsters. I try my best to teach you when I know when you get stuck. And yeah, zero one, you. there's zero one monsters to me. It's like, see, zero or one. It's, it's nice a monster. to hear you laughing, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, sure, laugh at my own stupidity. It's easy. Yeah. Well, oh, well. yes. She <laughs> my best friend. Agrees. Her best friend. I'm her best friend. Yes. We laugh at everything sometimes. We just can't help it. Okay, so go on, Mama. Okay, let's go ahead and tune into your next story. All right. Um, I want to know a little bit, a little bit about this segment. Maybe well, the era. <clears throat> let me see. I would say this one doesn't have the year on it, but we know that it's like the nineteen eighties, late eighties, probably. Okay. <clears throat> okay, so this is page fifty-two on Sister Me. And this was... We'll keep going back to Sister Me because Sister Me is a compilation of a lot of beautiful writings writings, and her prison writings. So it's supposed to be a book, an autobio. But it's great material to listen to. Okay, so Sister Me, page 52. The jailhouse lawyering, coupled with expanded work for WPFSG, Washington Families against capital punishment and um, changing prison systems basically is what it was what those the uh, acronym is my graphic political paintings frequently published journalism and other assorted political activities then exploded into the minds of administration they don't want you to get published and they don't want you to be recognized by any political group uh, in the country because you're a prisoner. So it's um, antithetical um, if you're getting support by uh, big, big uh, organizations like the NAACP or um, Amnesty International or um, ACLU or the Feminist Writers uh, Book Guild, or the Artists Guild, all of who I was members of, you know, I was a member too, and had friends that ran it, ran those organizations, and um, administration doesn't like that. They want you to just shut up and take your number and just do what they say, and that's it, and that's all. So... 
when I'm getting published and my paintings are getting out there and some were actually smuggled by teachers that worked at the facility. So if you can imagine, these are employees of the state and guards that are sneaking out my artwork so that it can be exposed to the public. I mean, that's pretty phenomenal. And it was like that because I found that there were these good guys that worked in the prison system in some way that wanted the public to know some of the things that were happening in there. And they had, did not have a problem facing it or helping you, helping me and others to try to get these words out. So, okay, so getting back to the sister me. Um, but you know what, uh, Duchess, there's a few things that I find are very similar where no matter where there's bad, there's always good. Yes. There's always good. Yes. Without a doubt. And you better search high and low sometimes while you're in prison to find that good. And sometimes the only good you're going to get is a philosophical good that you have to cling to because it's not going to be by a human being. It's going to be something you read that you can hold on to. We'll hold on to that because it was created by a human being just like you and I. Which is why a lot of people hang on to the Bible. Absolutely, and it's a great thing to hang on to. Okay, so this is uh, page 52. This jailhouse lawyering, coupled with expanded work for WPFSG, my graphic political paintings, frequently published journalism, and other sort of political activities, then exploded in the minds of administration. It was triggered by my distribution depositions with the Attorney General connected with a joint lawsuit that five of us instituted over the conditions and practices of intensive management unit, isolation the whole. My depositions were very damaging to the image of Purdy as a quiet campus-like gentle sort of facility, just the sort of thing the citizens of Washington would like to think they had, the combination of dispositions, however, and my political work, however, put me in a precarious position. As my unit supervisor, here he is again, Supervisor Wilson, made a point of reminding me, we have a sale waiting for you back there. <laughs> Just one wrong step. The cell he was referring to is my old cell, the one back on the eye block isolation, and if possible, the blackout box made specifically for me. When the official copy of my deposition to the Attorney General was given to the prison administration, detailing what I had charged about cruel and unusual punishment of the eye block, that's the isolation block, the whole, the prevention of meaningful access to the courts by administrators and the retaliation against me all was exposed. Now it was out in the open and it amounted to an indictment by those of us in the suit of the entire administration and their boss in Olympia. Their misconduct was so flagrant that it was obviously simply criminality. At that point, the wrong step had been made. 
I already knew what it was to be accused of infractions of which I was innocent. But now charges were trumped up on the most flimsy excuses, and if those were lacking, on and out lies were given. The other prisoners rallied to my defense, but it was to no avail. I could produce a mass lineup of witnesses to testify in my defenses to the matters of simple fact that I was at point A and 20 women saw me at point A at exactly one o'clock, which they could all attest. But those simple facts were not important. The testimony of my peers was not significant. They were disregarded. My efforts to bring even a degree of reason into these farcical proceedings were ignored. I was, after all, Compton, labeled by the administration as an unbreakable rebel rouser, but now a genuine danger to careers, their careers, their jobs, and their promotions. Guilty as charged. It ended only with my escape. By then it was clear to me that this time I would only leave isolation block in a straitjacket or under a sheet with the coroner carrying me out. Like they had others, my friends I mean. What they could not break they were now determined to destroy. The opportunity for escape just happened along fortuitously. One woman offered the chance. I took it compelled by the basic fear for my survival if I were sent back to A block, I block, but the news of my son's plight was new news. I no longer felt it would be wrong to try to escape. He was in a bad situation. He, too, was now incarcerated, not for having committed a crime, but for having run away from my father's home. Whatever pound of flesh I owed society for my crime had been paid over and over in eight years of blood, pain, and growth. August 13, 1988, where my cell is located, I can see and talk to all the new admissions prisoners. They often come in scared and crying, mothers torn from their children. I always want so very much to comfort them a cigarette, a conversation of support and hope, anything to make their plight easier. The guards have told me that if I continue to share my canteen stuff, they'll take it all from me. I'm nearly out of smokes. Thank God for top tobacco. I saved my butts to re-roll with a toilet paper wrapper. I can smoke that as I'm acclimatized to poverty I give the new commitments the fresh cigarettes. They're not used to the throwaways yet. The woman from Channel 4 put $5 on my books, so I was able to buy three top packages for the girls and I and a bottle of shampoo we could share. At the rate the new admissions are coming in, I'll need more tobacco in a day or so. Hope I can scrounge some bucks quick. This place only supplies a small tube of toothpaste and a tiny bar of soap, one comb, one toothbrush, that's it. No luxuries. The food is scant and mostly in pretty poor condition. You'd better eat what you can when you can. Thursday, August 11th, 1988. I was called 
I was called. Count. It was a count for bail hearing. Oh, excuse me. I was called. Count for bail hearing. Okay, well, thank you for coming back. We're going to go ahead and end this session right now with Veronica the Duchess. I can't imagine spending 23 years in jail, you guys, in prison. I mean, it's just everything. You can't even wear your own clothes. Everything is so, so different when you think about Veronica's experiences and all her emotions that she's been through during different situations during her prison life. It's just, it's uh, eye-opening to say the least. But uh, I'm going to go ahead and end this episode, episode three, and we will see you next Sunday here at my corner, Jack's Corner, for episode four. Thank you all for listening. Bye for now. Thank you.